questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. We've all asked ourselves the question. It's impossible to look up at the stars and not think about it. Are we alone in the universe? Books, movies, and television shows proliferate that attempt to answer this question and explore it. Tonight's guest treats that question as merely the beginning, touching off a wild ride of exploration in the final frontier. He considers, for instance, the myriad of questions that would arise once we do discover life beyond Earth, an eventuality which top NASA officials told Wall is only drawing closer. What would the first aliens we meet look like? Would they be little green men or mere microbes? Would they be found on a planet in our own solar system or orbiting a star far, far away? Would they intend to harm us? And if so, how might they do it? How might they already have visited? We discuss the insight of some of the leading lights in space exploration today and how the next space age might be brighter than ever. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Tonight's special guest is Dr. Michael Wall, a senior writer at Space.com, who has written extensively about the search for alien life. His work also has appeared in Scientific American, NBC News, Fox News, and a number of other outlets. He holds a graduate certificate in science journalism from the University of California, Santa Cruz, before becoming a writer, Dr. Wall worked as a biologist. He earned a PhD in biology from the University of Sydney in Australia and has 15 peer-reviewed publications. He's based in San Francisco, where he also chronicles the space tech revolution in Silicon Valley. And directly from San Francisco, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Wall. Hello, Dr. Wall, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Good, I'm good. Thank you for, for inviting me on. It should be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. And by the way, your new book is titled, I forgot to mention that, Out There, A Scientific Guide to Alien Life, Antimatter, and Human Space Travel for the Cosmically Curious. First of all, why the book? Why did you write this book? Well, yeah, I just thought that this is, this is a topic that, that, you know, everybody cares about. Anybody who 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 kind of thinks deeply about our our sort of place in the universe and and like what it all means. This is a question everybody considers. And we're we're really at the point now in space science and, and space flight where we can like actually tackle this this question. And it's it's sort of come out of the the like sort of fringes of the scientific landscape and into the mainstream. You know, I mean like there used to be a little bit of, of a taboo among biologists and and among planetary sciences to, to actually go after the whole alien life question. But that's not the case anymore. You know, this is a serious kind of field of, of scientific inquiry. And that's that's all. I mean, this this has all been kind of taking shape over the past 10 years or so as, uh, yeah, like as we've learned how many habitable planets are out there in the universe and, and that our own solar system has, has actually multiple habitable worlds that that, that could host life today. Um, so, yeah, and this is it's, it's just sort of all those things coming together is like. Wow, this this is something. I mean, we like we may actually get get some answers to this huge, huge question in the relatively near future. I had this. What you just said is something that fascinates me lately, because I've interviewed several professors in the past. I would say last three months, and I have to ask you this, which I wanted to ask you later, but I'll ask you now. Why do you think 
the topic of UFOs, at least from my perspective, is no longer viewed with ridicule. You know, years ago, many of the serious researchers I've interviewed would go to the mainstream media and, and, you know, they would put the X-Files music. They were made fun of. The interviewers would joke. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore in 2019. What changed, in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree with with that observation. I mean, I think that 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 same sort of revolution in thought about, well, there's so many habitable planets out there now. I mean, there's about 200 billion stars in our galaxy. And we've just learned over the past 10 years or so that that about a quarter of them probably have like a relatively Earth-like planet. And so, you know, that's like 50 billion potentially habitable worlds out there. And, th- and like, those are just the planets, you know, not even necessarily moons. And we like learned from our own solar system that like you, you could conceivably get, get a moon that, that, that has like a subsurface ocean that, that could support Earth-like life. You know, there are actually multiple moons in our own solar system like that. And so th- this is all kind of added. This is kind of built up momentum in the public consciousness, I think, just seeing these stories over and over again about, well, like we found another potentially habitable planet. And it's not that far away. And it's like, and, and then there are all these studies about, you know, Mars had oceans and Mars had, had habitable lakes and streams. And I mean, Venus may have been habitable. Just this kind of trickle of stories about, well, it's not it's not crazy to actually think that there could be alien life out there just because we're just learning that there's so much opportunity for that to have occurred elsewhere. And so I just think that that has sort of built up in the public mind over the past decade or so. And it's just given people reason to, to actually consider these things quite seriously and not just be like, oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, that's stupid. And that's that's kind of percolated over into the whole UFO thing, too. I mean, I think it's part of the same phenomenon. By the way, may I call you Mike? Sure, yeah. Thank you. Well, let's go back to August 15th, 1977, the wow signal. Was it a wired, isolated natural event, or was it a terrestrial interference somehow masquerading as a deep space signal? Tell us more about the wow signal and why is it so significant? Yeah, it's it's like it's one of the kind of deepest mysteries in in the whole alien life hunt, and it's probably something that that we're that we'll never know the answer to. I mean, but yeah, yeah. Back in 1977, um, this, um, yeah, like this big, yeah, big radio telescope, but that that was in Ohio, actually. Like, I mean, it picked up something that was an intriguing signal, and it seemed to be coming from deep space. And people didn't. I mean, there was no real explanation for exactly what it was. It was it was in the like the right range of kind of the electromagnetic spectrum where where we might like expect to hear something from an alien civilization. It's, it's, it's like a range of, of that spectrum that, that we might expect them to actually use if they're communicating. But yeah, I mean, we only heard it once. And, um, and, and over the years, people have, have looked in the direction from, from which it apparently came and tried to find it again, but it's just never recurred. And so it's, it's like, it's one of those things. No, it's not, I mean, it's not definitive. I mean, I'm not sitting here claiming that it was a, a sign from an alien civilization, but it's possible. And I mean, yeah, most astronomers would say it's, it was it was probably terrestrial interference of some sort, or um, that's that's the most likely explanation. But but the fact is, we we just don't know, and we'll probably never know because I mean, if it never occurs, then we then we never get a chance to actually follow up on it and, and do any more investigation. And that's sort of that's the frustrating thing about this field. Um, is that it's very possible to sort of get get a one-off signal like that, and then you never get it again. And so you can kind of speculate about it for, for the next 45, 50 years, and, I mean, we'll never really, really know. You mentioned Mars and Venus maybe having similar landscapes to Earth maybe thousands, if not millions of years ago. Then we have the asteroid belt. Do you think that the reason why, at least Mars, is the way it is today is Something that happened that caused perhaps another planet to blow up, and that's what we see now as the asteroid belt, and therefore caused havoc in what we see as Mars today. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think that like the asteroids are are probably not shards of a blown up planet, but just sort of pieces of the planets that like never came, they never actually coalesced into planets, like sort of like leftover pieces from the early solar system. Mars's transformation was extreme. You know, Mars did have like a big ocean and it, and yeah, yeah, about three and a half billion years ago, that had all changed. And that, that was probably because Mars is, is, is a lot smaller than, 
you know, than the Earth is. It's only got about 11% of the Earth's mass. So, like when it formed, it initially had this 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 you know, very powerful global um, magnetic field, which actually would would protect its its atmosphere from solar radiation and and other things, which would work to actually strip its atmosphere away. So. So it was it was protected by that magnetic field for for a while, and so it was able to actually hang on to a thick atmosphere, which in turn kept it warm enough to to keep liquid water on its surface and so on. But then three and a half billion years ago, or about four billion years ago, is when it all started. That that global magnetic field was lost, and then like all the solar charged particles that are streaming from the sun were free to start stripping away the atmosphere. And it was lost to space by about three and a half billion years ago, and that's really why Mars, why Mars transformed. You know, I mean, it lost all of its air, almost all of its air. It still has a thin atmosphere today, but it just and it and it got cold and 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 it got dry, and that's probably the that's that's what scientists think is is the main thing that that changed Mars from kind of like a relatively Earth-like world a long time ago to the cold, dry planet that that it is today. But Mars isn't. I mean, Mars's surface is very different. But but Mars still has subsurface aquifers. So um, so if if the Mars ever did host life, which is a very distinct possibility, it it very well could still exist down down in, like in that groundwater. I mean, not like not sure how kind of deep you would have to go, but um, it's 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 very possible that 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 there is still life down there somewhere. Just that question that came to mind, I wanted to ask you, let me just ask you this before we move on, and then I'll ask you what it just came to mind about the rovers. Uh, it's been 42 years since the wow signal. Uh, have we determined what it really was, or have any further conclusions been reached at all? No, I mean, it's one of those things where, where if you ask most astronomers, they will, they'll, they'll say it was like most likely like some sort of like terrestrial interference or, or something from a satellite. And that's, that's like the most kind of reasonable explanation. But there are some people out there who, who still think, I mean, it's, it's a viable candidate for an extraterrestrial, like sort of signal, you know, one of the people who, who first discovered it, he still thinks that it's, that it could very well be like some sort of extraterrestrial signal. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, nobody really knows. There's there's no firm consensus, but I mean, most scientists would say it's probably interference of some sort. But yeah, I mean, nobody like knows for for like certain what it is. I wanted to ask you about the rovers. They were supposed or they were planned for 90-day missions. An opportunity worked nearly what 15 years and then we yeah. have the other one that I believe is still active, correct? Well, um yeah, there those those like two that 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 actually landed in, in um, January 2004, Spirit and then also Opportunity. Right. They they right. Are, they're both gone. Spirit died in 2011, and like an Opportunity just died last year. But yeah, I mean, both of them were they were only supposed to row for about 90 Earth days, and they they both went for years and years, which yeah, which was amazing. Curiosity rover, which is kind of NASA that that's the one that that actually landed in 2012, and has has made us all sorts of cool discoveries about how there, there was an ancient lake in, in the site that is exploring on this, this like big crater floor that it's, that it's been exploring for, for seven years now. I mean, it's found that there, there was like a lake and stream system there that actually lasted for a long, long time. So that, that one's still going. Curiosity is about the size of a car. Um, it's, it's still going and it's still in pretty good health. Um, but yeah, yeah. Spirit and opportunity are both gone. There are Mars dust storms every so often, correct? Yeah, yeah, that and that that's actually what killed Opportunity, because um, it was a solar powered rover, and so yeah, so it needed relatively clear skies and clear solar panels to be able to absorb enough light to to survive. And that huge dust storm cropped up last June, um, and it, it covered the entire planet. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it, it probably coated opportunity with, with tons of dust and there was so much dust in the air for so long that it just, yeah, it just couldn't, couldn't get enough solar energy to keep its, its sort of heating batteries going. And it just, it, it probably essentially froze to death. What about curiosity with these storms that happen every so often? I mean, this have to be a storm, but there's dust in the air. So on. how are those cameras so crystal clear all the time? How do yeah. they clean themselves? Yeah, that's it's it's one of those things. Curi yeah, the actually Curiosity doesn't have to actually worry about dust so much because it's it's powered by. I mean, it's not solar powered. Nuclear battery is 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 what powers Curiosity. 
Um, so it, it can just kind of sit those dust storms out, you know, it's, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it does get some, some some dust on its cameras and and stuff sometimes, but, um, but there are also, there, there are winds on like Mars, you know, and some of these dust storms that like blow through, you know, they'll like deposit some, some dust on, on, on the Rover and on its cameras and stuff, but then another breeze will come through and, and, and sort of blow it off. So it's, it's just one of those things where it's like a cycle, you know, I mean, sometimes you get dusty and sometimes like a different breeze picks up and, and kind of blows the dust off of you. When you said nuclear powered, is it plutonium that it has? Yeah, yeah, actually. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a specific type that, um, where, where it takes like the radioactive decay of that plutonium. And there, there's a lot of heat that, that, that comes from that radioactive decay. And this, this particular type of, of like nuclear battery, it basically converts that, that heat into electricity, which, which the rover uses for its various, for its science instruments and to keep itself warm and so on and so forth. I remember in the early 2000s, if I'm not mistaken, NASA launched a, a probe. I forgot where it was going, but I do remember the fact that it carried 20 pounds of plutonium. And I thought, I know that the, the uh, space shuttles had an abort uh, button at any time. NASA could actually press a button and if <laughs> they could explode so that it's not affecting, you know, the, the, the cities and so on. But 20 pounds of plutonium, what kind of a warning mechanism or, or precaution, precautionary mechanism does NASA have if something fails and they have to abort it and if it's going above a city? Yeah, that, that's, that's a very good question. NASA has, has obviously thought about that, and they, they take great care to actually make, make sure that they, these things are safe, even in like the, the worst-case scenario. They're, they're actually like encased in, in, in like a very thick like sort of safe-like material, mm -hmm. basically, and they actually launch. So, so even in the worst-case scenario, if, if there's a launch failure and this, and this like spacecraft comes crashing back to Earth and explodes – they like they've designed this this safe that's that's around this 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 like nuclear fuel basically it's it's like been designed to endure even like the worst kind of explosions even the worst crashes that this thing could theoretically have coming back to earth so yeah it's not it's 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 still pretty safe nasa takes all that stuff into consideration good to hear mike there's uh, this renewed interest in going back to the moon as you know but mostly yeah. mars but shouldn't we focus on having a permanent base on the moon before we even talk about colonizing Mars? Yeah, this is a big debate, right? I mean, there, there, like, there are lots of different opinions about this, and it just sort of depends what, what your priorities are. It, it certainly makes sense to, to actually want to go back to the moon um, and sort of work out all of the technologies that we need, all, all the skills that we're going to need to actually live off of Earth for a long period of time, because this is really hard, and we've actually never done it, you know. I mean, you send people up to the space station, and they, and they stay for six months or so, and then they come back down. But that's really different than actually going to another world and trying to actually live on there for a long time, you know. Um, at, yeah, I mean, you go to Mars, it's like a six-month, at, at the very minimum, trip and that's that's just one way so if so if something happens on on the way to mars then you're in serious trouble you can't just come home and get get help um so that's that's the kind of mindset of of the group of folks who like want us to go to the moon first and set up a base there and get all of our kind of ducks in a row technologically so that we're kind of prepared for the mars missions but then like on the other side you have people saying well wait um we don't have an infinite amount of time and, and like a lot of money or, and we can't assume that the political will is, is always going to be strong to kind of fund Mars missions. So we should kind of strike while the iron's hot and just, just go to Mars. And, you know, I mean, we used to, to like be willing to take risks. I mean, you saw that back in the Apollo days, they, we were not really all that prepared to actually go to the moon, but, but we still went anyway. Um, we were like, there are risks, but we we're going to assume those risks and it's, it's that's just like the nature of exploration we should just go so there there is one camp of people who think we should just go straight to mars put put people straight on mars just because you know they like view the moon as um as as like a detour it'll it'll take up a lot of time and money and could push back the whole kind of boots on mars thing by a generation or more and i i mean i'm i'm sort of sympathetic to both sides i i can see both like both angles i'm kind of I mean, I, I'm kind of impatient. Like I want to see 
big, big discoveries made while I'm like still alive and still, still actually capable of, of like, yeah, I mean, processing information and like right, understanding right. what it means when my brain is still working relatively well. So I would kind of like us just to, just to take the big chances and just go to Mars. Um, and that, I mean, NASA is not necessarily going to do that. That's, that's not, that's not NASA's plan right now. You know, they're, they're, they're going back, back to the moon. They want to land two astronauts by the South pole by 2024. You know, that's, that's their plan at the moment, but we could still see people going to Mars quickly via the, the, the private sector, you know, I mean, Elon Musk to take people there. Bezos. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's something that might just have, that's just happening in sort of parallel with all, all the NASA stuff, you know, SpaceX is probably going to go, go to Mars on their own timeline and just, just go. So we're, we're, we're probably going to see both approaches kind of playing out in like real time, kind of in, in parallel. I was going to ask you that if you think that the private industry, it's not that it will replace NASA, but I think, and this is a question that I've always had. Look at the moon. We haven't been there since the early 70s with, with, with man missions. You would think by now, Mike, it would have been commercialized. Just imagine a few Nike and a bunch of other companies sending a probe, putting a camera there 24-7, looking at planet Earth from there, and then underneath Nike and whatever other Coca-Cola, Pepsi, whatever, but you would yeah. think that by now we should have a permanent camera focusing on planet Earth from the moon. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's a great idea. It's 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 surprising that that it hasn't happened already. You know, people people would actually watch that. I, I would watch that. I mean, if that's just just like a permanent YouTube channel, that would be a great way to to kind of de yeah de stress. That's right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I'm like, I'm just going to watch Earth from Space Channel. Um, I think that's that's a great idea. It's kind of surprising that that, that that hasn't happened yet, because that would be something that's that's fairly easy to do. And I mean, I think it just hasn't happened yet, just because private space has not gotten to the point, or, or like hadn't gotten to the point. I mean, it is there now. It, all that stuff is going to happen in the relatively near future, just because we, you know, we got a bunch of different private space flight companies now. There, yeah, there are all these private companies designing lunar landers that actually NASA is going to use to put instruments down on the moon and stuff. You know, they're get, they aren't building their own landers. NASA isn't. They're they're going to buy rides on these private company landers to take their take their experiments and their other payloads down to the moon. And like on those landers, like along with with the NASA payloads, there are going to be private company payloads. You know, there's a whole range of things that that are going to start landing on the moon in the next few years, and some of them are going to be science gear. Like we're just talking about NASA's wants to do, but some of them are going to be people's ashes, you know, uh, people pay for, for, for space funerals and they're, they're going to pay to, to, to land their like relatives ashes on the moon. Some of them are going to be stuff like, um, you just mentioned cameras going to the moon, stuff like that, t- uh, time capsules, all this stuff, you know, some of these are already booked on some of these private lunar landers. Some of these companies have already booked, a. a some spots on on these lunar landers in the next few years so that that stuff's gonna start happening and then we're, we're gonna have to start having these serious conversations about like who owns the who owns the moon who owns space what what is the I mean, who are yeah who's the governing body who says hold on stop this is this is not what we want to have happen on the moon if like you get companies trying to carve out like a giant logo in the, in the lunar regolith so that people can see it from the earth through telescopes. So, I mean, that, that all sounds silly, right? But these are the sorts of questions that we're going to be confronted with just in the next few years as this commercial activity really starts to, to kind of ramp up. I'm surprised that that hasn't happened yet, even in 1969 when we put our, our flag up there, that yeah. uh, this is the kind of conversation that needs to happen in, on earth. If we ever did that to an unknown land, who claimed it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, probably the like best analogy that we have here on earth is actually Antarctica because it's, yeah, that, that's, that's what the current vision for the moon is. It's basically nobody and like the outer space treaty, which is, which sort of governs all of this says that like no kind of sovereign country can, can own like a patch of cosmic real estate. So, so like the United States cannot claim like yeah, like when Neil Armstrong stepped onto the moon with the American flag, and he 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 couldn't be like those old time seafaring explorers who just plant a flag and, and then claim that land for his country. You know that that's not kosher on the moon. Mankind. You can plant a flag there. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you can't claim it as national territory. But that but that doesn't mean that you can't do commercial activity on the moon. You know, there are a lot of companies that actually want to to do moon mining. They want to go to to some of these craters on the moon that are at the poles and whose floors have been in shadow, permanent shadow for billions and billions of of years and have lots and lots of ice. And so there are lots of companies that that want to send rovers down into into these craters and, and start actually mining water ice. And, um, and, and then sell it to people for a variety of, of various purposes, um, some to, to keep people alive. You know, obviously, astronauts are, are, are going to need that water, but also to, to kind of split it into rocket fuel and then to, to sell it to, to sort of passing spacecraft. So you don't have to, like, launch new spacecraft from Earth to, to like, refuel and, and stuff like that. That's, that's a whole business model that is, that is under development. And there are a lot of companies that actually want to do that. And there, and there is nothing, there's kind of an argument there, there are various viewpoints about like whether that's okay or not. Um, there are a lot of people who, who think that, well, yeah, I mean, you can't claim lunar territory for the country that, that you come from, but you can still kind of make a profit off of like lunar resources. And, um, and like, there's another analogy here on earth for that. And that's sort of like the law of the deep sea which is that nobody can sort of claim the like deep sea, but you can still fish there. You can still do oil drilling and that, that, like that sort of thing. So that's the kind of model that we're working toward. But I mean, knowing human nature, people are going to push the envelope of that model and try to get away with things and try to make extra money. And we're, we're going to have like a bunch of conversations that are going to be difficult and you're going to, and, and are going to be, and they're, they're going to be strong feelings on various sides. And we're going to see that play out over the next few years. Let's stay with this topic because this is a conversation that has to be had. For example, yeah. you're talking about, We'll come to the Antarctic Treaty and what Admiral Byrd, you probably heard the story of Admiral Byrd saying that when he went there, he found resources more than the United States can even imagine. But, you know, in, in 50 years, we had not a lot, ExxonMobil, you name it. You would think that by now, some energy exploration company would be out there finding, but let, let's get out of that for a moment. Let me go back to the moon. Helium-3. You know, a gas that has the potential to be used as a fuel in future nuclear fusion power, and it's uh, basically non-radioactive. And it could power cities with just a few ounces of that. You would think, again, by now, that is a very safe way to power the entire Earth. By now, you would have a company or even government ministers going to the moon to mine helium-3, which is readily available because the sun is hitting it all the time. So... It produces it. Yeah, and that, but that, that's one of those things too. I mean, we don't, yeah, we don't like yet have kind of like working fusion reactors here, here on on like Earth yet. I mean, that's still in its in its infancy. That that technological development. I would bet once um, once we get fusion reaction, um, yeah, like going up here and like actually providing energy. And that's that's going to be a huge deal here on Earth. You know, that'll that'll provide lots and lots of energy, and it'll be. It'll be clean. Uh, once that starts happening here on Earth, we actually get real, real sort of fusion power. Then you're going to see a lot of momentum for well, let's explore getting helium three off the moon, and um, that's that's going to be a really big deal. But um, yeah, I mean, and that and, like that's in some people's plans. You know, there there there's this whole moon mining like like sort of like blueprint, and I mean, it starts with the water ice because that's probably extremely abundant and fairly easy to, to access you know nobody knows exactly how how hard it's going to be to, to kind of like um let, you know, get that that water ice and actually use it um, because they don't they don't know if it's like pure water ice and like big sheets at the bottom of these craters or if it's mixed in with a lot of rock and so on and so forth but like we're going to find that out over the next few years but once you sort of get that lunar economy going based on the water ice at first then people are thinking, well, you know, that'll that'll set the stage for more ambitious mining operations to come. You know, I mean, metals and and that that sort of thing, helium three, and then that'll expand out to asteroids. And there's going to be a whole nother kind of gold rush with asteroids, and that that'll start also with the water. But then you're going to get all these precious metals on asteroids, and like the rare earth metals that are so important for our electronics industries, and so on and so forth. So that's sort of how how people think it's going to happen. It's going to start with the water ice, and that's going to kind of unlock everything else. And then then we're going to see this this big like kind of off earth kind of mining industry taking shape. What about rockets that go to the moon? If we want to go to Mars, and we have helium three there. 
Wouldn't that be something that could be used to power the rockets to go to Mars and beyond? Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I mean, what, um, people think one, once we get these these sort of moon mining operations, asteroid mining operations going, because yeah, I mean, even if if we don't have like a like some sort of big like propulsion breakthrough that that'll make Mars trips really fast, it, that that could still make it a lot cheaper because I mean, you could just like refuel spacecraft in in, in like lunar orbit or even in, in like Earth orbit. And just have them going back and forth, like to to and from Mars, based on this these these fuel depots, basically that are that are that that are taking water mined off of like the moon and and like off of asteroids and processed into rocket fuel. And you can just have these gas stations in, in space, basically. There are a lot of people who who think that that's going to be the big breakthrough that's that's going to enable a lot of exploration in like the next generation or two. As you're speaking, I was trying to look in our in my files, because I had a, a, it was a company, just probably about eight, nine years ago, hiring, hiring people, miners, to go to an asteroid, to live in the asteroid, and mine for gold. Have you heard that? No, but it wouldn't surprise me if they're not in business anymore, because that seems like a pretty far, like, like a far future. It's it that that's a very ambitious sort of plan. Um, probably have to start a little smaller than that. By the way, it's interesting, again, and liberating to see scientists like you talk freely about the subject of extraterrestrial life. Just a, a couple of years ago, you wouldn't. In fact, I mentioned another professor who told me he asked the dean of his university, kind of a, for his blessings, if we will, and the dean praised him, said, great job, continue doing that. So it's great. It's liberating to see that this topic is being taken seriously, not only by all of you, but by higher-ups in universities and colleges. Yeah, and that, and like and that's something that that we've seen even go up through through government agencies. I mean, NASA officials. I mean, NASA's yeah, uh, chief scientist, like a couple of years ago, Ellen Stofan was the chief scientist, and she basically she she said in in a public forum that she expected we would find evidence of alien life within the next fifteen to, to twenty years or so. And you know, for, for I mean, NASA's chief scientist to come out and say something like that and be be that optimistic. That wouldn't have happened probably ten or fifteen years ago, and that's it's just really changed. You know, people people have really taken note of this 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 idea that the Earth is super special and there's nowhere else in the universe like it, and like therefore life is probably really rare. That's just been shot shot to to basically smithereens over the past ten years, and we're finding all of these habitable planets all over. They're just they're just everywhere within our own galaxy, and then you think about how many galaxies there are. It's just, it would be just really surprising to me. I would be shocked if we were the only life in the universe. It just, it just doesn't make any, any kind of sense at all from, from a numbers standpoint anyway. Sounds very arrogant if we had to, it's the height of arrogance to think that we were alone. But do you think yeah. intelligent extraterrestrial life has already interacted with us? Um, you know, that's really hard to say over the four and a half billion years of the earth and like the four billion years of, of, of like life on earth. I mean, like, like, is it possible that some extraterrestrial craft has, has made it here and has scoped our planet out or, or has scoped it out from afar? I mean, that's a long time. I mean, maybe I'm dubious that like anything that we've seen in the sky as a UFO over the past few sort of generations is an alien spacecraft. Um, it's just that's a very high bar to clear, um, and just from a common sense sort of standpoint, I don't know why like an alien spacecraft would come here and just kind of zip around it in our skies for a little bit and then zip off. Um, it seems like if they're that advanced to kind of make it here, they could they could stay hidden if they wanted to, and if they wanted to be seen and wanted to actually interact, then they would probably do so. I mean, all, all this stuff is total speculation, you know. It's like ET psychology when it's it's there's there's no there's no basis for any of it. But it just from from the common sense kind of standpoint, it doesn't make sense to 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 I mean, at least from like my perspective, why why there would be these crabs zipping around in the skies and that's all that they're doing. It just it just seems weird to me. If we live in a vast universe that could be teeming with life, would it be safe to say that perhaps there could be beings like us, some less advanced, some more advanced? The less advanced obviously would not have been able to make 
contact with us. And the more advanced could have, but perhaps we don't have the technology to receive their message. And I'm only talking about communication. What about space travel? Only the more advanced could make the, the, the all the way here. Your thoughts on this? Yeah. And I mean, I think, out, out, yeah, like just the like huge distances of space and there's so much out there. I think that there's probably advanced extraterrestrial life somewhere. Um, but, but the odds that it has like occurred kind of close to us in both space and time, because I mean, you have to take time into this too, you know, we're at a very specific time in, in the 13.8 billion year history of the universe. So even it's, it's possible that, that like we may have overlapped with an extraterrestrial civilization in space. That's not too, too far away from here, but in time too, you have to hit both of those marks. Maybe there, there have been billions and billions of, of, of like years for alien civilizations to, to rise and fall. And we don't know what the average lifespan of a civilization like that is, you know, like we're, we're barely technological. We're in our technological infancy, just, just like a hundred years or so. And we were already well on the way toward killing ourselves, basically climate change. And I mean, all of these ecosystem collapses that we're seeing around our planet. And we, and we've almost started like a couple nuclear wars. So all this stuff, I mean, maybe what the explanation is for what I'm basically what, what we're talking about is, is like a famous, it's, it's the famous Fermi paradox, right? It's like, um, why have we not seen any signs of advanced alien life if the universe is so big and there are so many habitable worlds and so on and so forth? And, um, yeah, there are a lot of possible different answers to that. And I mean, a lot of them probably are kind of working in, in concert to explain it. But like one of the things might be that there are advanced, there are advanced civilizations out there, but they just don't last very long. They tend to, to off themselves once they, they, they get to the point where, they, they have mastered enough technology basically to kill themselves, but they, they don't know how to use it. <laughs> so they end up kind of dropping all, all that energy on their own heads. Um, that's a possibility. It's, it's, it's also possible that just, yeah, the, the whole time and space thing is a difficult thing to, to kind of line up. I mean, like we would have to have arisen in the same general time and same general space as, yeah, as another alien civilization. We, we don't know how sort of likely they are to arise or how long they last. And then there's, there's a whole motivation thing. I mean, as you just said, you know, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of time to cross these huge gulfs of, of space and, and time. Um, so you either have to be super advanced and have all this advanced propulsion, or you have to be very, very, very motivated to, to do it, to be willing to invest all that time and all the energy into, into traveling. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 an impossible question to sort of know the answer to, but you can sort of work your way around it by by speculating on a on a number of different levels. And I mean, it doesn't surprise me that in the past sixty years or so that we that we've really been looking that we haven't found anything yet, just because that's not a lot of time. Um, and we, I mean, we like we could also talk about how we're looking too. Like we don't know if we're looking for the right signals. We're using all the technology that we've mastered in our technological infancy, but I mean, maybe they're not the right signals. Maybe like ET uses very different signals. There are just all sorts of possible answers to that question. When it comes to the traveling from point A to point Z here, from a light year away, if you will, we're thinking about propulsion. Wouldn't that be more conventional wisdom as opposed to stepping outside the box? And I know that science has a problem with this, of bending time and space. Maybe one light year might be something where they instantaneously may appear here. And we just don't even know how to fathom that technology. Yeah, that's very possible too, because yeah. And it, it just goes into, I mean, how advanced are, are these hypothetical civilizations that we're talking about? I mean, are they a million years ahead of us? Are they a billion years ahead of us? I mean, if you look at our trajectory just over the past hundred years or so, it's, it's been exponential in terms of how we've developed technology so if you take that exponential curve and you give it another billion years, you know, <laughs> you could really get some some unbelievable technology that we cannot fathom, that we couldn't even like begin to to sort of imagine. And and I mean maybe I mean yeah maybe faster than than light travel or or wormholes and all, all the sci-fi stuff that we dream about. Maybe that that does become viable once we get I don't know twenty million years ahead or. 500 million years ahead or like whatever, like really big number you kind of want to throw out there. I mean, that, that's very possible. That's, that's something that we shouldn't just, just dismiss out of hand because it seems crazy to us because 
it's very possible that if if we exist for another billion years, we we actually manage to survive. Um, we we may be capable of, of very incredible things if like if we make it to to that advanced age. I remember my conversation with the late Edgar Mitchell when he told me, in less than one hundred years, my ancestors came from the east to the west in horse and buggy, and then I went to the moon in just a matter of less than a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a really instructive thing to actually remember. Um, and I mean, look at just just computer technology. Look, look what's happened with cell phones just in the past ten years. And I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, who knows if that sort of technological advance is sustainable? If that pace is sustainable? But we've we've certainly come a long ways just in the past century or so. And yeah, yeah, I mean, who knows what what the future holds? Really, you mentioned a very interesting scenario: the the the, the fact that. These advanced civilizations may off themselves after they conquer technology, you know, more than they should. But when I look at the pyramids and the megalithic structures around this, our own planet here, and the fact that we cannot even come close to replicating them, obviously, we must have had some technology back then that we cannot even come close to it now. Could it be that we face that same scenario where we off ourselves because we conquer technology and some of us survived. Um, well, there there are certainly some, yeah, some like various civilizations have like gone through that that serious bottleneck, you know, about like where they they, they sort of used up all their resources, and that that may have been their undoing. I mean, Easter Island's probably the the most famous right? example. Of that. Um, so yeah, there 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 are definitely examples throughout human history where we we have expanded too fast and we we have not planned very well. That that sort of that's sort of a hallmark of our species. We don't really think long term very well, and so we just end up doing what's the easiest and most profitable in the short term, and that can have very very nasty consequences as we've seen throughout history. I mean, like I mean in terms of of these ancient structures, like I mean I mean if you have enough slave labor, you like you could build the these giant structures like like the Egyptian pyramids and that's, they, they were, they were smart. They, they had, they had really good architects, but they also had lots and lots of slaves to be able to do all that stuff. So I don't think we have to invoke anything particularly special about, about that, except, I mean, thousands of, of slaves over, over generations. What about the green glass, the desert glass that's found in the uh, Libyan desert, for example, you know, you see all that area that at one point in time, some scientists say and archaeologists say that there's a lot of water and it was green in that area and now it's all dead that desert and green glass found do you think that one point maybe we had atomic weapons that were used and detonated or in that area of the world uh like i no i mean i like i wouldn't think we would have had atomic weapons in the ancient past i mean like you can get sort of like meteorite i mean these these like big impacts can can create glass i mean you could get like an asteroid impact that 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 fuses sand particles into glass. People, people have seen that certainly. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't, like, I don't know if you have to invoke nuclear weapons to, to explain some of these things. Then there's the theory of self preservation. What if advanced alien civilizations are not making contact with us to avoid being destroyed or enslaved? Yeah, well, that that's that's a viable explanation, right? That's that's one of the possible explanations for if there are advanced aliens out there, why haven't we seen seen them, or why haven't they actually like sort of reached out to us? I mean, it's not hard to sort of imagine this the scenario where maybe there are there is a handful of like really like rapacious like advanced civilizations like like the old Borg from from Star Trek, right? That just go around trying to to steal people's resources and and worse. And in, in that situation, you know, it, it's probably best to kind of keep your head down. Like you don't want to draw attention to yourself um, and, and become a target for some of these, these sort of raiders. So that, that could explain why some, why some civilizations are not kind of looking outward so much that they want to like, like kind of keep their heads down and stay safe. Um, and there are other, there are other kind of ways you can think about it too, you know, there, there are some scientists who who posit that like maybe the reason we haven't heard anything from anybody is that we're not like sufficiently interesting. Like you know we're still in our technological infancy. We we barely entered the the space age. We've sent like a couple probes outside the solar system, but they're moving pretty slow, all things considered. We like haven't become a multi planet species. We're it's still unclear if we're going to survive as a species. Um, so there, there's one kind of train of thought that thinks. Well, 
maybe we're just like like ants to these really advanced civilizations and they they just sort of know that we're here but they don't bother with us because we're not and we're not advanced enough to interest them we're just sort of like i'm part of the the sort of cosmic scenery to them and so yeah there, there are some scientists who think that like once we get advanced enough and once we really master interstellar flight and start doing some like very interesting things outside the solar system then that'll that'll perk people's ears up and be like, oh well, we should maybe invite these people to to join the like so-called galactic club. Um, yeah, that's that's like one one sort of train of thought. In the meantime, we're just simply part of their global fauna. Yeah, I mean, there 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 are all sorts of hypotheses, right? There there are some there there are people who think that like yeah, we're we're part of like a like a cosmic zoo, basically. Like some of these really advanced civilizations know we're here and they're they're watching us and maybe they're even like. I don't know, plunking their their kids in front of some viewer to watch us and keep them entertained for hours on end or something. It, it, there there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of of ideas that are invoked to to try to explain Fermi's paradox about why why like might we not have like drawn drawn the interest of alien civilizations or or what yeah why have we not made any kind of contact with them? There's just there's just hundreds of of theories out there. Here's another angle, Mike. The cosmic silence. Are we alone? Yeah, that's certainly possible too. And that's the most depressing one, right? Like I I don't want to think that that's the case, but that's that's a possible explanation. I mean, maybe we are alone. I mean, if like not in in all eternity of of time, you know, maybe maybe we're alone right right now or maybe there's just nothing that's close enough to us to reach out to us in our own sort of short short civilization lifetime. And that, that's another thing that we have to keep in mind, I think, is that we're just talking about a tiny sliver of time where we could have actually noticed anything, right? Um, so I don't think it's like a death knell for the for the existence of advanced aliens throughout the entire universe that we haven't found anything yet. Like this is we we like really only started the this whole SETI search in 1960. That's when like the the like very first effort started, where where we started using like just just like a few radio telescopes to kind of scan for 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 interesting signals from the heavens and so yeah in, in the past 60 years we have not found anything but that's a tiny tiny sliver of cosmic time and who even knows if we're looking in the right way and this search has certainly not not been well funded for for the majority of its existence it's always been a shoestring operation um that's starting to change now a little bit as we were talking about at yeah, at the beginning of, of this interview where this is becoming more mainstream now and it's like drawing like a bit more interest and now we've got a little more money coming into the mix and people are getting more serious about the SETI search. But for for years and years, it was very much a, a, like a shoestring thing. You know, they're like have to hustle private donations. And um, so, yeah, I, it, that's that's not an argument to me um, for, for why we're alone, that, that we haven't heard anything from a SETI search yet, just because it's been very short and it's been far, far from, from any kind of complete search to date. What about the religious angle that God loves us so much that maybe <laughs> Earth is the only inhabited world in the entire universe? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if you're a religious person, that, that'll appeal to you. That's certainly one explanation. Um, I personally don't find it compelling, but there are some people who, who, who would. You know, if you are like a young Earth creationist or, or if you're like a biblical literalist, and and you think everything that's in the Bible, that's the entirety of of like the received wisdom of humanity, like everything that we need to know is in that book, then then that argument would probably appeal to you. Um, but yeah, I mean personally it doesn't like I don't find it compelling. Now to me, and this is just my humble opinion, Mike, if indeed there are other planets located in the Goldilocks zones of distant suns, if we have life here, then to me there's more possibility that there is life elsewhere. We just haven't been able to make contact. In other words, I lean towards there is life as opposed to we're alone. Yeah, I mean, I do too. I, I think that there, there are a number of, of sort of good arguments for that. I mean, only like one, the, the availability of the real estate is just half of the equation. And we, we haven't talked about the other half, which, which I find just, I mean, just as compelling. And that's that life on earth began like very, very quickly. Like we, we have pretty solid evidence 
that goes back to about 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago of, of the first organisms. And there are some people who push it back even further. You know, there, there are some contested claims that there are signs of life going back to 4.1 billion years ago. And that's pretty much just, just as soon as the Earth was cool enough to actually host liquid surface water. Because, you know, it, it started out very hot. I mean, when, when, when planetary building blocks come together to, to actually form a planet, there's, there's a lot of heat that's involved in them coming together, glomming together. And it takes a long time for that heat to actually dissipate when it's a body that's as big as the Earth. So like 4.1, 4.2 billion years ago, that may have been like right around that, that first time when the Earth had cooled enough to support like liquid oceans and so on. And that's when we see life emerging. So when you take those two like data points, you know, there's a lot of habitable planets out there in, in the galaxy and beyond. And it doesn't seem like it takes a miracle for life to start based on how, how like quickly it all happened here on Earth. Um, it seems like life should be widespread through the universe. And then, I mean, you take the other angle too. I mean, there, there is complex chemistry just going on of its own accord in deep space. You know, we find amino acids on comets and in, on, on various asteroids. You know, there, there are like some meteorites that people have examined here on Earth that have almost 100 amino acids, I mean, 100 different amino acids. So there's all this complex chemistry going on out there. And so that, it, I mean, all of it comes together in my mind anyway to, to suggest that, that life is not just like this incredibly miraculous one off thing that just happened here on Earth, but, it probably could happen lots of different places that are relatively Earth-like. And I mean, if you just want to talk about Earth-like life, we can we can talk about, but you know, I mean, various ways life could manifest and like like kind of strange life too. But but only looking at at like Earth-like life, there's a lot of of real estate where it could have taken root, and it and it seems like it like could happen fairly easily based on that. That seems to be what what actually happened here on Earth. What about this scenario? 71% of Earth is water. Only 5% of our oceans have been discovered. 95% remains to be discovered. Now, just taking a quick detour from the topic, but it, it will link in the end. What if advanced intelligent life in other planets, you know, they have underwater beings? And there are many witnesses who have seen objects here on Earth diving into the ocean without making a splash. Do you think that there may be extraterrestrial life hiding in our oceans? Um, it's one of those things, yeah, that, you know, like the deep oceans are extremely unexplored, you know, and it's very difficult for us to, to get down there. And I mean, anytime that, yeah, I mean, marine biologists send the, these little robot subs down there to do investigations. Every time that they basically do that, they, they find new life forms. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 like, I've heard no, like no signs of, of anything. I mean, it, uh, like I, yeah, I've seen no evidence, or I've, I've, I've had no kind of basis to actually believe that there would be advanced aliens under, uh, that, you know, sort of living in our oceans. Is probably a better way to actually say it. You know, I mean, I guess it's possible, but I would, I would be surprised just because then, then you get into that whole like, what are they doing here? What's, what's the point? Like, sort of argument. Um, and it's just one of those things where you would, you would need a lot of good evidence to, to sort of back that up. Well, I can say it's 95% remains undiscovered, so the possibilities are endless there. But I remember in the mid-90s reading the book, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, Dr. Gray. But what if men and women come from Mars? Tell us why you think this may be a possibility. Yeah, that's that's a real possibility. There, There's a growing sort of, well, it's not a consensus or anything, but there, there's a small group of, of folks who think that um, that Mars is like a, is a viable candidate for like the the sort of cradle of of Earth life that it probably it probably started on Mars and then came here to yeah I mean it sort of colonized Earth aboard like meteorite fragments that were blasted off of Mars by a comet impact or an asteroid impact and there there are a couple different reasons why they think that I mean it's I mean first of all I mean like we were talking about earlier Mars is quite a bit smaller than the Earth and so it probably cooled down a lot faster than the Earth did from its formation. So it was probably habitable earlier than the Earth was. Um, it probably had oceans a little earlier, and it was probably like a kind of cradle that like could have supported Earth-like life. I mean, prior to the Earth being able to actually do that. And there are some people who also think you know it had like the right chemical mixtures. It had had wet and dry areas, and 
and just like the fact that that like earth life emerged so fast and it, it was complex pretty quickly i mean not not in like multicellular form that 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 took about like three billion years for, for earth life to kind of advance beyond microbial to to form multicellular life but it was it was like metabolically complex very quickly i mean photosynthesis appeared pretty quickly once earth life got going and so so all these arguments are like, well, how did it, how did it get here? So or like, how did it take root so fast on earth and how did it like diversify so quickly? It just seems like it would have needed more time. So there's some people who think, well, we, we, like we kind of need to push the emergence back a little bit. And so like maybe if it needed more time, it could have gotten that time by, by arising on, on Mars and um, which, which like did have oceans and streams and, and so on. And there are reasons to think that this is viable. I mean, there, like there are like lots of, of chunks of Mars that are here on Earth that scientists have discovered. Um, because yeah, I mean, Mars is is like going toward the outer solar system. You know, Earth is is actually closer to the Sun than Mars is. So when these rocks get blasted off of Mars by big impacts, they get drawn toward the Sun by the Sun's gravity, and some of them end up like actually getting sucked in by by Earth's gravity, and they end up falling onto Earth. And we've found a lot of them over the years, and there's probably many, many, many more that we haven't found. So that's the thinking is that if if these microbes first evolved on Mars, then all it would have taken was was a few of these rocks to get blasted off of Mars by an impact and and then come to Earth. And yeah, you've got that kind of planetary seeding from, from one to the other. I mean, there there's like no... Yeah, there's no compelling evidence for that you know it's more of an idea and it's it's more it's more circumstantial evidence and just sort of reasoning but it's but it's not a crazy idea <clears throat> and and people are are kind of taking it more and more seriously as as we learn more about ancient mars and and like more about life's chemistry and how it all emerged so when you say that we come from mars are you saying that literally or just panspermia uh, directed or perhaps by explosions and rocks that came all the way here and our DNA came in one of these rocks. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, there, there are people who, who actually think that, that, yeah, it was, it was microbes that first evolved on Mars and then they just by happenstance got blasted off by an impact. And then those rocks just happened to sort of rain down on earth. But there are other scientists. I mean, some of them are, are like very reputable scientists who take that a step further and that, the, the whole kind of life on earth got started really fast and life is very complicated bio in, in, in like a biochemical sense and that stuff that happened really fast and that that actually suggests to them what you were just saying is that maybe it was no accident like maybe it was directed like and spermia and that i mean maybe life comes from like far beyond our solar system and we are the are the intentional seeding campaign of an advanced civilization who basically just wanted to get their own DNA out there and, I mean, colonize other, other worlds, other solar systems for, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they just want, it's, it's like a Darwinian thing. They just want to spread their, their, their like DNA and their, their culture, their, I mean, it's like whatever you want to say, they want to spread it all, all over the like galaxy. Um, I mean, who knows, but yeah, there, there are some, there's some very reputable scientists who think that, 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 that the directed panspermia idea is like the most logical explanation for, for life's very early emergence and, and very early complexity biochemically here on earth. You mean Ella Prometheus? Yeah, that, 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 like that sort of thing. Um, that doesn't seem like a very efficient way to do it. Just have, I mean, have an alien like Hollywood. The edge of a waterfall and, and, and like kill himself and have <laughs> right. his gut spill over the waterfall. It would probably just be more like they would send microbes out on in, in, in like little nanocraft or something in like a pellet. And they would send millions of these little nanocraft out to, to like colonize various solar systems. Um, that's yeah, that, that like that sort of thing. I mean, people, people are taking that more and more seriously. I just tried to imagine, because in the past couple of years, you've heard about the recruitment for uh, Mars. You've heard this, right? They're recruiting people to go to Mars. This is a no-return journey, if you will. Paint a picture of how it would be to colonize a, a place like, I'm not even the moon, let me just skip the moon, go directly to Mars. How many years, to paint a picture of how many years would it take before we can terraform a planet like Mars? Yeah, that's a good question. Like, I don't think anybody knows. Um, there are some people who think it really couldn't even be be done, at least not with our current technology. 
and there are others who think, oh, you're, you're being pessimistic and we're, we're going to figure stuff out and we could do it in like a hundred years or so. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just really, there, there's a lot of debate even like among people who, who hope to do this. There, there's no real good idea of, of how, how difficult it would be. I mean, everybody agrees it's, it would be difficult. It would, it would take a lot of time and a lot of money. But there are some people who are confident that it could happen within the next hundred years or so, and other people are like, no, it would take at least just a thousand years, or I mean, maybe just be forever beyond our our grasp. And there are, there are various ideas of how we could do it. You know, I mean, some people have proposed, yeah, trying to actually just just melt all all of the ice at the at the yeah, the, like at the ice caps, you know, because actually water vapor is is a potent greenhouse gas. So so if you if you transform or tra- yeah, transform that ice directly into gas form, which which is what would happen. Mars's atmosphere is too too thin to support liquid water, so all that ice would just would just go directly into to gas if you heated it with like a giant mirror or something, or it would it would it would go into the atmosphere. And there are some people who think that there's enough gas there to to kind of warm up or the the you know, the entire planet. And like you could do that with with the dry ice too. Mars yeah, Mars doesn't just have water ice it that has frozen carbon dioxide, which of course is, is a greenhouse gas too. And there are some people who think that there, there, there might be enough of all that stuff to kind of warm the like planet enough to make it more livable for us. And then you could sort of finish off the, that job using microbes to, which would pump out more and more CO2 or more and more methane, which, which is another good one. Um, but there, yeah, but, but then there are other scientists who think, well, there's probably not enough carbon stored in, in like all of Mars and the ice caps and in the rocks and all that to, to even make a dent. So it's, it's a, like, it's a real debate. And, um, there are some people who think, well, let's not even worry about terraforming. Let's just go and try to carve out our own little patch. And maybe we could just make a little patch livable and live under a dome for a while. And just let's, let's not be too ambitious about this. Let's, Let's take it one little piece of Mars at a time and just and just gradually spread out our, our our like our footprint onto another world and that's the best way to do it. And I mean, as we were talking about earlier with all the what's gonna happen with the moon and the commercialization of stuff and these tough questions, you know, the, these are all questions we're gonna have to confront fairly soon if, for instance, Elon Musk and SpaceX do end up launching some people to Mars in the next decade or so, which is what they're planning to do. I mean, I don't know if they'll make that timetable, but that's the sort of ambitious exploration that they're shooting for. But when you look at Mars, a hundred, what is it, roughly a hundred times less dense than Earth's atmosphere, you know, 95% carbon dioxide versus what we have here, 0.03. Aren't yeah. we better looking perhaps at another celestial object's moon, maybe Europa, maybe one other moon that could have similar properties than what we have here as opposed to Mars? Well, it's, it's tough because when, when you go into the outer solar system, you know, that's getting really far away. You're really far from the sun. It's incredibly cold, much, much colder than Mars. And it like, like when you're, I mean, I don't know about, I mean, Europa would be hard because it's, it's right. I mean, it's in these, these powerful radiation belts of Jupiter. So yeah. And it's beyond the habitable be, zone too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to actually get to the habitable environment, you would have to get under the ice and be in the ocean or you just get. I mean, you get destroyed by, by the radiation. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just really hard. You know, Mars is not great for us, but you know, it's probably the like best that we can do in our own backyard. Um, if we wanted to find a, a, you know, like a more earth like place, like a more earth like planet, we would probably have to go to another star system. You know, Joseph Castro, he writes for space. Joseph Castro, he writes for space.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he actually proposes that, that uh, Europa would be the the best place, the best place to, to, to find a way to, uh, you, know, uh, you know, send humans there, humans to uh, Europa. It, you know, it would be difficult, but maybe not impossible. And, you know, it's thought to have a vast water ocean beneath it, icy surface, and it's considered the best place to find life in our solar system. Do you agree with them? Um, I think it's probably the best bet for for finding present day life. Um, I mean, Mars. I yeah, like Mars. I would I would not be shocked if there were microbes in like in those aquifers on Mars. But actually, I mean, getting to them would be difficult. I, I would also not be shocked if if that giant ocean that's that's underneath that like big ice cap on on this moon we're talking about, um, Jupiter's moon Europa. 
it would not shock me at all if there was life in there too. I think there 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 are multiple places that would be good to actually look. But for but for people to actually live, I I mean Europa would just be so hard. Um, it, it would be really interesting to actually visit it. But there's so much radiation there on the surface. Uh, it would just be really hard for us to actually live there for for any length of of time. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean. Yeah, going to to like various places looking for signs of life. I mean, Europa would be very near the top of, of of my list looking for alien life. But but as far as where we could set up a colony for people, I, I mean, probably the Moon and and Mars are like are are two really only viable options at least for for the near future. Not to mention the gravitational force that you have with Jupiter just being right next to it, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it would it would be hard. It, w- it would be hard for for a lot of different reasons, and it's just it's it's really far away too. You know, Jupiter yeah. is a lot farther away than 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 our own moon, obviously, and also and Mars. So, um, yeah, there there. I mean, maybe in in like the distant future, if if we invent this like some sort of fantastic radiation shielding or something, and we can just build habitats out of that stuff. Um, I'm, I'm maybe, but yeah, that's 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 nothing short term anyway. I want to discuss the radiation shielding when we come back. We have to take our our break, but how can people buy the book out there? Oh, if you just search for it, um, just just go to Amazon and, and search for it with, with my name. It'll yeah, it, like it'll pop up. So, well, folks, we have a lot more to discuss. We'll get deeper when we come back. We have a lot of notes here that I want to discuss with Dr. Michael Wall. This is Mel Hasselbrick, and you are listening to Veritas. See you in the member section. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting... Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.